got really dark there for a minute. Good morning. I thought it was nap time there for a moment. Um, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Harley Rathel, and I am the campus pastor of our Butte-Kyle campus, which, by the way, doesn't officially exist yet, but we're working on that. Um, we are working towards uh, actually having some weekly gatherings starting in later August, and then our official launch, September 25th, is the date that we are shooting for. So that is all progressing, and we are excited about that. Yeah, it's good. Um, and I'm thankful, I know I've said this before, but I'm thankful for the ways that you guys have welcomed my family and the ways that you guys are jumping on and participating with this new endeavor for us as a church. So just let me say that. And again, if, if you're in the Butte-Kyle area or you know someone in the Butte-Kyle area, I would love to get to meet them. So if you want to pop me an email or if you want to come up and introduce yourself because you live down that way, please do that. I'd, I'd love to have that opportunity. Now, I just want to put, draw a circle around something that's a little bit funny to me, and that is the fact that I am preaching today, and it's July 4th weekend, and the last time that I preached was on Memorial Day. Um, I, I think that's a little bit funny that the newest American gets to, uh, gets to preach on these particular days, but maybe there's something significant in that. In fact, I wanted to show you a picture, if I can, of me becoming a U.S. citizen. This... Uh, <laughs> you, if you know my family, you can tell by the girls, they're a little younger there. This was a little over three years ago um, that I officially became an American, and it was a great ceremony. Um, they, you know, we did the whole raising of the hand, I got a certificate, all of that stuff. They, they did this montage at the end where they sang Proud to be an American. It was awesome. Um, and so I am, I am very, I mean, with all that said, I am thankful that I do have the opportunity to be here. And I know Casey's already shared a little bit of this. Like, we live in a place where we're able to gather like this and to worship God together. And so my hope is that today there really would be, even though it's a holiday weekend and there's a lot of moving pieces, I'm praying that we can pause now and just really celebrate who God is and the freedom that we have in Him. And so to that end, I'm going to invite you to pray again. Um, we're going to pray specifically that God would use these next few minutes to speak to us. So if you would just bow your heads, let's pray. God, this stillness and this pause is good for us. Because all of us walk in here probably with busy minds, busy hearts, things weighing on us, things we're joyful about. And yet, Lord, there are some very core truths that we're going to look at today that we need to hear. And so we want to just pause and invite you to speak to us, God. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are here. We, as we've already sang, that you're working amongst us and we're inviting you to continue that work, that good work among us in these next few moments. Thank you. Amen. We live in a day and age where people seem to be easily offended. And you don't have to look too far to find that out, right? Like you turn on the news, you open your social media account, and there are plenty of keyboard warriors out there wanting you to know exactly what they're offended about. 
And in this current culture and context of finger pointing, there actually is a grave danger, and that is that we would be offended or embarrassed about one of the very core truths of the Christian faith. And so I want to explain that to you by using an example, by giving an example. We'll talk about what that core truth is, but I want you to picture this, that you have plucked up the courage to go and to talk to a friend and invite them along to church. And so they've come along to church with you, and it could be to any church, not this church particularly, but you take this non-Christian, non-church background person to church with you. And as you walk in and find the spot where you're going to sit, the singing starts and everybody stands and they start to sing this song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, if you're familiar with those words, you know that that's an old hymn written in 1772 by a guy named William Cowper, who has, by the way, a pretty incredible story. But I'm going to imagine if you're walking in, in that scenario, and, and you're that friend in that scenario, there's probably some things going through your minds. For you as the person who invited the friend, you're probably thinking this, yikes, why do we have to sing that song on this particular Sunday? That sounds weird, you know, fountains filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, plunging beneath the flood, you know, all of that. And if you're the friend, you're probably thinking, whoa, what, what did I just walk into here? Like, is this a cult? You know, like, um, are they about to bring something out? Like, there's probably all these thoughts going through your mind. And so I plan on making two cultural observations this morning, and, and an observation is a generalization, but the first one is this, we live in a culture that seems to have an increasing aversion to blood. And so a song like that seems strange. If you don't believe me about this aversion, I want you to think about our culture a little bit by first thinking about restaurants. In recent years, what have we seen happen at restaurants? Well, I can tell you one thing that I've seen happen is that when I sit down at a restaurant and I'm handed a menu, what I typically find as I open up that menu is a whole bunch of things with little special marks on them. Sometimes it's a V, sometimes it's a color, but what it's designating is items that are vegetarian or vegan. That didn't used to be the case years ago. That wasn't normal to find that increasingly it is popular to be vegetarian or to be vegan. And I know this because I grew up as a vegetarian. <gasps> yes, I grew up as a vegetarian or at least in a vegetarian home. Uh, my mom was a vegetarian and so we all ate vegetarian food. And what used to happen is when I would tell people that years ago, I would say, yeah, I grew up as a vegetarian, which I'm not a vegetarian anymore. But I would say that, and people would almost act like I was very strange. They'd be like, oh, are you okay? You know, I'm sorry. You know, that was kind of the response. Whereas today, when I say, oh, yeah, I grew up eating vegetarian food, people are like, right on. Okay, cool. You know, there's been this shift that's happened. And it's not just at restaurants. It's in other places that we find this change. Today, you will find advertised clothing that is vegan, or furniture that is vegan. That's, that, that wasn't a thing years ago, right? That's changed. 
we even see this in, in our reactions to certain things. So many of you know, yes, I'm Australian but or by birth, but I uh, spent the last few years in Scotland. And when people find that out, one of the things they like to ask me is, okay, tell me about Scottish food. And the two things that always come up are haggis, right, and black pudding. What is black pudding? Do you guys know what it is? Blood sausage. That's what it is. That's why it's black. And when you say that, people wrinkle up their noses, right? They're kind of like, ugh. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Our culture, by and large, is accepting that blood is a yucky thing. And so that when we start talking in church circles about blood, that kind of transposes over from our culture. Animal sacrifices. When you start talking about the fact that the Bible talks about animal sacrifices, people are like, whoa, whoa, hey, what's that about? And these cultural feelings are pressing on the church. And when I say the church, I mean, by and large, the whole church and its message. In fact, if we were to do a survey of the church as a whole, and look at how many recent sermons or books or songs there were celebrating the blood of Jesus, I would imagine that there has been a diminishing amount of those across Christendom. In fact, some wings of people who claim to be a part of the evangelical church would even question the necessity of the blood of Jesus. And so I want to take a few moments to look with you at a text that talks about the necessity and the power of the blood of Jesus. Because I think we need to think about that in this culture that denies that that is needed. And so we're going to do that together today. And I think it's significant that we're doing that on here on Independence Day. Because as Casey has already shared, Freedom doesn't come without a price. And we're going to see in this text that our freedom as Christians didn't come without a price. It had a price, and it was the blood of Jesus. And so let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 together. I'd invite you to follow along with a Bible in front of you, whether that's on your phone or a hard copy. We will have the words on the screen. But we're going to read together Romans chapter 3. And as we do that, I probably should, just before we go there announce to you that Romans 3 is an incredibly profound text. It's dense. There's a lot in it. In fact, I was trying to think of an analogy to portray that, and this is a little peculiar, but it's a little bit like a clown car. You know what a clown car is? That's where like the clowns just keep coming out of it. This text is short, but there's just so much in it that just keeps coming out of it. So we won't cover all that's in Romans chapter 3 or even the verses we look at, but... It is a beautiful text. And we're going to start in verse 23 together. As you read, you'll see it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we pause there, I want to just make a second cultural observation. And that is that our culture is increasingly ignorant of its sin condition. If you study the spiritual awakenings of the last couple of centuries in the United States of the United Kingdom, what you'll find is that there was predominantly in the culture at large, not just within the church, but in large, a belief 
that there was a God and that he had a standard by which he wanted us to live and that we didn't measure up to that for the most part. That was the general cultural understanding. So what would happen in these times of revival and awakening is a preacher would stand up, sometimes in an open field, and he would proclaim, hey, there is a God and he is holy and we have not measured up to his standard, but there is a way for us to be made right with him through Jesus. And what would happen in those, those moments, in those times, is there would be this conviction that would sweep across these crowds. People would be convicted and they would weep. And they would turn to God and find forgiveness in Him. Now, if we fast forward to today, that base of understanding, those beliefs about God and sin that were held in general in the world, have been eroded. So our culture, for the most part, believes that there is no God. And if there is no God, that means there is no holy standard. And if there's no holy standard, there's no sin. Our world and culture is blind to reality. The reality that we're told about, as clear as day here, that we are all guilty of sins. It can't be put any more clearly than this. This is like a knockout sentence. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we find in our culture is people think, well, I'm not that bad. I I think I'm a pretty good person, right? I've heard those things many times. That goes against, exactly against God's word. Verse 23, yes, but the rest of the counsel of Scripture. In fact, from Romans 1, Paul's been building the case that we are all sinners deserving of death. If you go to chapter 3, that has been specifically built on. If you look at verse 11, there is, sorry, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. We are all sinners, which raises a good question of what is sin? We're talking about this word, but what is it? Well, according to what we've read here, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's part of the definition It's falling short of the glory of God. And that may sound a little confusing. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that we're not measuring up to God's perfect standard. We fall short of that glorious standard. Maybe a good way to picture this is for us to put on our Indiana Jones hats a little bit. And to picture, you know, a scene where where you have to jump from one ledge across to another And when you try, you run and you jump and you try to make it. If you don't make it to the other side, what do you do? You fall short. That's exactly what's being talked about here. And I think in our minds, we think we're not that bad. And so we look at the chasm between ourselves and God and we're like, okay, I'm not that bad. I, I just fell short. But the reality is that chasm is not inches, it's miles. We're not even close to measuring up to God's standard. And so this sin that we struggle with, it takes on all sorts of forms. We sin in what we think. We sin in what we say. We sin in what we do. I'll give you a couple of examples. When we look at someone with lust in our hearts, we are sinfully ignoring the truth that God alone can satisfy us. And we're believing a lie that someone else can bring fulfillment to us. When we call someone with our words an idiot, 
In sin, we're declaring someone as useless that God has actually declared has worth and value because they're made in His image. When we greedily hoard our resources instead of sharing with those in needs, we are being sinful and selfish because we're believing that we need to look out for number one. We're going to take care of things because maybe God doesn't really know how to do that. I give you these common examples of sin because I think often when we talk about sin, we're like, oh yeah, that's when you murder someone, right? Well, yes, that is sin, but it's much more pervasive than that. We are all infected with sin and our world is completely bent out of shape of shaped by it. God is not okay with this state of affairs of things that we're talking about. And so, as he looked at his creation, which he originally called good, what he has seen is that it's been distorted from its original intent, and we have been distorted with the rest of creation. So to picture how God feels, I want you to imagine with me I don't like this analogy, but I think it's helpful. A husband who loves his wife, whose wife is taken away from him by another man. How does that husband feel? He's going to feel upset, sad, angry, wanting to fix things and wanting justice. And in a way, it's not a perfect analogy, but in a way that pictures how God feels. He wasn't content content to just sit on his hands. And watch his creation unravel. So he acted. We should all be very, very glad that Romans 3.23 is not the end of Scripture. I mean, mean, imagine if that was the end of the story. For all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God, that's it. No, it goes on and tells us what God did about this problem. It says this in verse 24. They, the people struggling with sin are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's being stated here? Well, it's the good news, the best news. We call it the gospel, and that is that we sinners can be made right with God. The word for that is justified, to be put in right standing, to not any longer fall short of the glory of God, but actually be made right with Him. And it's telling us not just that we can be made right with Him, it says that this justification is offered to us, how? For free. It's a free gift. So how can we be made right with God for free? How does all of this happen? Well, it tells us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we read that and we're like, okay, through Christ Jesus, sure. But that's not very specifically specific. And so if we read on in verse 25, it tells us more specifically what that is. Let's read that together. God presented him, that is Christ Jesus, as a propitiation, we'll come back to that word, through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. Verse 25 gives us the precise details on how we can be cleansed from our sins and made right, be made right with God. We are forgiven and put in right standing only through, and this is what it says in the text, faith in His blood. There's the blood. There's the necessary truth, the core truth. 
It's only through his blood. There are some big and beautiful concepts in this text. There's some theological stuff going on here, but I don't want for us to get confused. And so let's just take a pause and reflect on what's being said in this text. Firstly, we are told that we are all sinners. Secondly, we're being reminded that we can be forgiven of our sins and made right with God through faith in Jesus' blood. So how exactly does the blood of Jesus help us? Well, this is where that special and uncommon word really helps us out. That's that word propitiation, which is a bit of a tongue twister. I looked up, I looked up some theological definitions and ideas on what this was that I could share with you. But actually, as I was looking, there's a scripture that's linked with this text that I think gives us a great working definition of what propitiation is. And that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'll read it for you. It says this, He, God, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Propitiation is the substituting of Jesus on our behalf. He took on the just wrath, that is the righteous anger of God that our sins deserved, and we, if we believe in Him, take on His righteousness. This is what we call sometimes the great exchange, where we get what we don't deserve, and Jesus gets exactly what we did deserve. To maybe oversimplify it, his blood was spilled instead of ours. And we got his inheritance. He took our place on death row and we became heirs to the king. But some of you may be sitting there thinking, okay, that's, I, I can track with that. But couldn't God just forgive sins? Couldn't he just wipe them away? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Why did there have to be this spilling of blood and the blood of Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is actually in the question itself. I said, couldn't God just forgive sins? You see, God is a God who is just and a God of justice. And what that means is he can't just forgive sins. He can't just wipe away sins. He had to pay for them. Because God is just, that means that he had to go through this process of sending his son at great expense to himself. Because if he ignored sin, he would be unjust and unloving. To help us picture that, let me take it Take us back to that analogy I used earlier of the husband having his wife taken from him. I know it's not a, a pleasant thing to think about, but if in that scenario the husband wasn't upset, wasn't angry, we would question his love. If he was just like, oh, okay, she's gone. Like we'd be, we'd be like, wait, 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 do you even love her? God's intense anger, that is his wrath towards sin, is proof of his love for us. You see, wrath and love 
Wrath is not a popular subject, but wrath and love are are two sides of the same coin. In fact, one of my favorite writers, a guy named J.I. Packer, puts it like this. The wrath of God is as personal and potent as his love. And just as the bloodshedding of the Lord Jesus was the direct manifestation of the Father's love towards us, so it was the direct averting of his Father's wrath against us. Wrath and love are held together in this news, in this message. Jesus died because sin could not be ignored. Someone had to pay. And this is where it's good for us to acknowledge we couldn't pay that debt. No amount of good living, no animal sacrifice, nothing was sufficient for us to pay the debt that we deserve. Jesus had to come and to shed his blood for us. What's interesting to note is that before Jesus' arrival, God was preparing mankind for his arrival and for this sacrifice. There are two specific ways in which that happened. In the Old Testament, in the time of Moses, God gave something very special. He gave his chosen people, the Israelites, the law. And the law was given to help us understand sin. The law was to say, here's God's standard, and here's how you don't measure up to it. And the Israelites were to proclaim that, yes, to each other, but to the world, that there is a God and that he has a standard. The second thing that God gave at that time was the sacrificial system. This is where there was animal sacrifice, and that was to show the severity, the cost of sin, as well as showing us a way to fix it, and the way to fix it was through blood. And so there's a lot of detail in the sacrificial system and the law that we could go into here. But I want to give you one example. Once a year at a time called Passover, each family household had to go and find a spotless male lamb. And they were to take this lamb and they were to sacrifice it and then take its blood and put that blood over the doorposts of their home, of their household. And the reason that they would do that was that was to show that they needed blood to to cover their sinfulness. So that when God would come in his judgment, that he would pass over their sins. It's deeply symbolic. There's a lot to it that we're not going to get into this morning. But I want to ask you this question. Did that sacrifice or any animal sacrifice cleanse those people at that time from their sins? And it's a little bit of a trick question because the answer is no, but... That sacrifice was an act of faith, looking forward to the cross and the perfect shedding of the blood of the perfect lamb of God that would pay for their sins. And so this raises a really important point and one that people really celebrate about Romans 3.25. And that is the fact that this moment that we look at, the moment between the cross and the empty tomb, those few hours are literally the most important hours in the timeline of human history. Because in that moment, if you'll see here, that's where God injected himself into our storyline. Because of his love, because it was the only way. And in that moment, as he shed his blood, what that did is it shot out waves of grace 
in the timeline of history, both past and future. And so we celebrate that when it says in verse 25 of Romans 3, in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. What that is talking about is that people in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross in faith, not knowing the specifics, but knowing that that God was faithful to forgive them of their sins. And in the same way, we look backwards to that cross in faith, knowing that that shedding of blood was necessary, not just for us, but for every human who has ever lived and will ever live. And thankfully, because of the potency and power of Jesus' blood, it was only needed once for all time. And so as we think about this, as we think about the blood of Jesus, which is, yes, a culturally taboo subject. I hope there are two reflections that are welling up in your heart as we do that. One being the kindness of God, that he would institute this rescue plan. And the other is the severity of our condition and the severity of what's needed here and the severity even of God. If we were to fast forward on to Romans chapter 11, there's a section there where God is talking about his choice and his power, but it says this beautiful little sentence that seems appropriate for our reflections here on Jesus' blood. It says, behold the kindness and the severity of God. As I think about the blood of Jesus, I can't help but think of the kindness and the severity of our God. The Christian message about the blood of Jesus is kind and severe. It's severe in that there is a day coming where God will call all things and all people to account in justice. It is a severe message in that those who have not placed their faith in Him will face a just, eternal punishment. It's a severe message in that God had to send his son to die in our place and that it was a great expense to himself. He had to shed his precious, precious blood. But it's also a kind message in that God has given us great grace and great hope. He has given us time to repent. It's a kind message in that there is a way for us to be made right with him through an acceptance of this grace that we do not deserve. It's a kind message in that forgiveness and freedom is gifted to us. It's not based on our merit, being a good person, measuring up to the law. No, it's a free gift. We are freely justified through the blood of Jesus. So how do we respond as we reflect on all of these things. Well, let me start by asking you this, and I am not gonna make this culturally correct. Do you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sins? I'm gonna imagine that in this room, we're a big enough room, there are some people here who are not sure if their sins have been forgiven not sure of where their eternity lays. And if that's you, if your heart's racing a little bit harder right, right now, that's because God is stirring. He is working. 
He is calling to you to come to Him and accept this free gift, this cleansing that comes through His blood for everything that you have ever said, thought, or done that doesn't measure up to His holy standard. Don't be prideful in this moment to squelch that feeling, to squelch that notion. Know that there is no thing that you have done or ever will do that is too significant that His blood cannot cleanse. It is a perfect stain remover. And so the call here to some of you is to receive this gift of grace. It's free. If you have questions about what that means, ask the friend that brought you along. Come and talk to myself or Pastor Casey. We'd love to have a chat. If you do know the power and significance of the blood of Jesus, and if you know that your sins are paid for by that blood, I do have some specific responses I want to encourage in in us. I would put myself in that category. The first thing is to say, let's not be conformed to this world and this culture in which we live. Romans 12 puts it this way in verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. I'm praying that this service today is a moment of transformation where we're like, you know what? That blood is so precious and I am not ashamed of it. God doesn't need us to clean up His image by pretending that the blood is not a central part of the hope that we cling to. Let's not be embarrassed about the blood of Jesus. Our culture may have moved away from blood, but spiritually we must never, ever, ever move away from the blood of Jesus. As you think about the blood of Jesus, I'm hoping that you'd be stirred to say, yeah, I'm not embarrassed about that. But secondly, that you'd be stirred with thankfulness and worship in your heart. Let's worship God together this morning. This is an incredible rescue plan. What we've talked about here, the blood of Jesus, is a gift that was given that has an infinite value. We can't put a value on the blood of Jesus. This blood of Jesus was shed for us willingly by a God we are told cares immensely about us. We don't deserve that. And so my hope is that right across this room, as we take a moment here, in just a moment, to to respond, there'd be a real sense of worship, a real sense of gratitude, a real sense of thankfulness as we consider the blood that was shed for us. And that we would join in a way with the heavens declaring how awesome God is. In fact, if we were to read into the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation in chapter 5, It says there that there is worship going on. And this is what they are saying. You are worthy, Jesus, because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people by, you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. I'm praying that we would join the choir in those words, in those reflections. It goes on and says, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. Amen? Amen. And so may there be some real worship that happens in these next few moments.
as we consider this God who is worthy of our full adoration because he shed his precious, precious blood for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are here, that you are working in our midst. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. And God, we thank you for the blood that was shed for our sins. We thank you that as Christians, what we get to celebrate is the fact that we get the life that we did not deserve. And we get to hand you all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our sins. And God, if there's anybody in this room who has not received that free gift, God, I pray that today, here on July 3rd, 2022, that they would experience that radical change. We thank you, God, for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. God, we pray that as we reflect on your great grace and your amazing blood, that there would be just such an atmosphere of thankfulness and worship, even in this room in these next few moments. Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and worship our amazing King.